This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. A new bill was just introduced into Congress called the Transparency in Music Licensing and Ownership Act. While it purports to make life easier for bars, restaurants, and coffee shops that license music, this bill seems to me to be a wolf in sheep's clothing for artists and labels. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting merchtable.com. On today's show, we discuss this act and the potential it has to wreak havoc on the music industry. Should we be afraid? Or is there no chance it'll pass? Find out right now on The Future of What. Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Kevin Erickson of the Future of Music Coalition. Kevin, welcome back to The Future of What. Thank you for having me. Good to be back. Yes, it's always great to have you. You provide such a nice, clear picture for our listeners. It's always good to talk to you. So what we're talking about today is there was a bill introduced, or I I should perhaps say an act introduced, by a bipartisan group of representatives, Jim Sensenbrenner from Wisconsin and Suzanne Delbene from Washington State, my state, actually. And it's called the Transparency in Music Licensing and Ownership Act. So just to start us off, can you just explain to the best of your understanding what this act is trying to do? Well, that's actually kind of complicated because (laughs) when uh, Representative Sensenbrenner talks about it, he sort of identifies some specific goals that the bill doesn't really seem to address. The title of the bill, Transparency in Music Licensing Ownership, is something that really anybody can get behind. It's a good idea who could be against transparency. And the centerpiece of the bill is the establishment of a central database for information about musical compositions and sound recordings that would be housed at the Copyright Office. And that information will be publicly available. But the other piece of it where it gets more complicated is that it also limits the remedies available to copyright owners that they currently enjoy for infringement. Basically, if you don't register your stuff with this database, you don't have the opportunity to sue for statutory damages if somebody uses your work without a license or without permission. So the more that you dig into this stuff, you know, that's the thing about transparency. Transparency is something that I'm sure regular listeners to this podcast will have heard a lot about. And transparency is something that comes up in so many parts of the music industry. In all of those contexts, the devil's really in the detail. And in this bill, especially, the devil's in the details, and these details are are pretty devilish. (sighs) I mean, maybe I can zoom out for a second. Like As I was like thinking about how to explain this, I, I sort of identified like these five little pieces of background to understand why this bill kind of dropped. First, as everyone knows, the House Judiciary Committee has been undergoing this comprehensive review of the Copyright Act since 2013. They've had 20 congressional hearings, many of which relate directly to music industry topics. And after all that time, various legislative proposals have been floated including some others that you've discussed. But what we're assuming is that in addition to all these individual bills, there's a goal that 
Chairman Goodlatte has is like one big music licensing reform bill or even one next great copyright act. Secondly, is you know, this is sort of basic, but everybody understands that as business models have been changing, there's been a huge increase in the number of transactions happening. So rather than accounting for a thousand units shipped or even downloads sold, now you're having to account for individual listens across an array of different services. So for a single track play that could be generating as little as 0.04 cents or whatever, you have to divide that tiny amount of money amongst a bunch of different performers and writers and publishers, et cetera. So it can be a lot of work to distribute what is often not very much money per use, even if it can potentially add up an aggregate. Which brings up the third background piece, which is that need for transparency. And in particular, all of these transactions happening at a much bigger scale than before opens up the possibility of money that's unattributed, where the data could be incomplete or flawed, money gets stuck in a black box because they can't attribute where it should actually go, or it gets divided up by market share instead of by actual usage. So there's been a push for better data, more open data, and more interoperable data that different entities can draw from the same data set that way, connect the dots more easily. For example, we've recently seen FoundExchange open up its ISRC database and make it publicly searchable. That's helpful. And other PROs and to some degree publishers have made moves that direction as well. But there's been a lot of conversations about one big global database. In the past, efforts to build that one big global database have broken down largely because of the lack of consensus about what information should be in it, how it should be formatted, who should have access to it, and who ultimately controls that information. In an information economy, information can be hoarded by various parties for their individual benefit. So people have talked about private marketplace solutions that would create some kind of neutral intermediary or they've also talked about legislative options. So this bill is sort of like the latest in that conversation. Okay, a fourth piece of background is that performance rights organizations are experiencing a lot of disruption in the normal ways that they do business, in part because of the 100% licensing issue that has also been discussed in your podcast and the Department of Justice things that have been going on. So keep that in mind as well. (laughs) And then finally, fifth, it's important to think about the problems that Spotify and other digital services have had with complying with their obligations to pay mechanical royalties. That's resulted in a number of lawsuits and expensive settlements. And I think they're making more of an effort than they have in the past to fix those problems, but they haven't fixed it yet. And they're still getting sued. I think you've also discussed these lawsuits in, in previous podcasts. Yeah. That's, that's sort of like the background on which this bill landed in August. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a a complicated landscape. It's very complicated. But it's important to think about all of those pieces to, to understand all of the moving parts here. It's interesting that after the efforts, maybe this is more of an aside, it's interesting that after all the efforts of the music industry combined over the last however many years, you know, we have the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act. Like we have the AMP Act. Like we have several acts that we have had introduced into Congress that have the backing of the music industry. It's just really interesting that Sensenbrenner out of nowhere basically 
came up with this particular act, which isn't, you know, he's not necessarily supporting something that the music industry had put forward, but he's rather sort of coming to the table with a new bill, which right. which is supposed to solve these problems that we've already been talking about forever. Right, right. Like barging into a conversation that's already happening as mm-hmm. if you have the solution to it. And nobody gave us a heads up that it was coming and or asked us for feedback and had talked to other music organizations that had sort of reported the same thing, which on its own is sort of not a good sign that it's going to be the kind of bill that takes the concerns of all parties into account. But it's also not a like not really a sign that the bill's intended to pass. Right. Or is like a serious effort at forging some common ground. Yeah. And that's where the the details really do matter because that, that transparency thing can be used as a pretext for driving down rates or eliminating the kind of leverage that songwriters have right now. It's funny because like if you read if you read Sense and Brenner's press release, he says across the country, businesses and establishments play or perform music for the enjoyment of their patrons, but the process of ensuring that they are legally able to do so as well as those who hold the license to the music or recordings being played are fairly compensated, is convoluted and difficult. Because of this onerous process, business owners often struggle to obtain the correct licensing, leaving them vulnerable to lawsuits, as well as increased licensing fees. You know, elsewhere, he sort of complains about how ASCAP representatives had been rude on the phone to some of his constituents and that kind of thing. And on some level, I can sort of sympathize with that. You know, I used to run a venue before that I helped run my college radio station. And so I, I've been on the other side of the table and trying to figure out how licensing works. And it is complicated. You do have to deal with multiple entities. And for somebody who's just entering that field, it can be difficult to understand that one, you have a responsibility to pay. And two, you have to re- you have a responsibility to pay multiple performance rights organizations if you want to be able to play the full array of music that's out there. I think that the representative uh, performing rights organizations have one of the most difficult jobs and often unpleasant jobs in the music business, going out and explaining to all the bars and restaurants and venues and hotels what their obligations are and how the law works. But, you know, music is a really important part of the experience that they provide. And it's it's important, you know, they have to pay for it the same way they have to pay for the ketchup. You know, It's, it's, it's part of the experience. So it's difficult to understand how the creation of a centralized database actually changes anything about that dynamic. How does the existence of a database help the little corner coffee shop or the neighborhood bar? they still need to obtain licenses from all of the performing rights organizations because in almost every case, they're not going to have the capacity to monitor what they're playing and check it against the database. Only the biggest entities who are going to have the time and the resources to reference the database and make it worth their while. It's it's only going to be the people who have the kind of resources and the kind of power that are in a position to benefit from, from this. Right. For the little coffee shops in the neighborhood bars, you know, like I'm sympathetic. It would be nice if they could just pay one person instead of four. And I would love to see a solution that's sort of like what a company called Christian Copyright Solutions provides for churches right now. It's like a company that was set up as sort of one-stop shopping for churches. So they pay one bill annually and then ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC get paid out of that. It's a pretty straightforward rate schedule and it eliminates some of the confusion, and then the churches can play any music in the ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC catalog. It'd be great if something was set up like that for 
little neighborhood coffee shops and bars. This bill, though, doesn't really help them. Right. So that, you know, that makes me curious about what the intent behind this bill is really about. And that's where the the details about the elimination of the access to statutory damages comes in. Right. I will not allow us to rout with a fallowed fate On account of your dream that a baby won't be likely made Father, all this weight, I'll take a pound or two, then lay it on our son to light another fuse. I will not allow him to rot with a foul old faith. All the thoughts, bid and me out, I would love for you to Every night if it was black or it was blue Make haste, leave him Make haste, leave a go
was Why Do I Try by Horse Feathers. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Want an even closer look at issues we talk about on the show? Our monthly newsletter will keep you informed about news, upcoming events, episodes, and more. You'll also have access to exclusive offers and behind-the-scenes looks. Sign up at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and win a Future of What t-shirt. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Kevin Erickson of the Future of Music Coalition. I don't know if you read it, but Chris Castle wrote an article that was basically, (laughs) he used lots of flowery terms to describe this bill, most of which I probably can't say on like FCC (laughs) governed radio program. But basically, he was saying that's the situation. Like, if if you break this down, this what it's really doing is it's allowing people who are currently getting away with not paying artists to continue to get away with not paying artists because it puts, yet again, the burden on the artist to register their material with the copyright office in some form or else they are not protected and people can just exploit their works willy-nilly. Right, right. You know, when I read this thing, I was I was struck by how sort of thin the bill is. It doesn't get into a lot of the operational details about how this would even work. For example, it doesn't seem to say who's actually going to pay for the database. Right. Somebody went and asked Sensing Bernard's office who's going to pay for it, and they said, oh, well, the songwriters and the creators are going to pay for it through user fees when they submit their recordings to be included in the database. So it's creating another new fee that musicians have to pay to be able to enjoy the limited protections that they have now. Wow. The burden's entirely upon the creators. Wow. And it creates other burdens as well. It mandates that rights holders have to provide each album title containing the work or recording being registered. And I think as uh, Billboard pointed out, that this means that anybody who owns the song has to provide the title of every album it appears on, even when it's performed by other artists. What? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like, how are you going to keep track of that? It creates a new monitoring responsibility. Oh, my gosh. Like, you know, as new covers are being uploaded to YouTube every day, how is a, a, you know, even a, a working songwriter who's internet savvy how are they going to find time to monitor for that kind of thing, let alone 75-year-old songwriters who's retired and relies on that mailbox money from ASCAP that they collect from the performance of the songs to be able to pay their rent? Like, It just makes no sense for there to be a new monitoring requirement that's created and the burden placed entirely on the music side. Wow. And, you know, if that were the case, I mean, you know, best case scenario, everybody's sunny and happy and everything's easy we would already have a global rights database because it's not like we haven't been talking about this for 20 years. There's a reason that we don't have such a thing, as you said at the top of the show, where I used to sit on the board of WIN, which is the World Independent Network, 
in meetings with, you know, representatives from France and Germany and Switzerland and Australia and New Zealand and all over the world. And that we talked about exactly that, a global rights database. And, you know, there are a lot of good reasons why that hasn't been able to be put together yet. You know, people, different territories have a lot of different objections or concerns or whatever. And it's just been really difficult to make anything like that happen. Another part of this bill appears to be, you know, that's completely left out of the equation is, I mean, what happens when someone's in a different country? Because American music is played in different countries all the time, you know? So does that mean that they have to come to the U.S. to have any kind of, like, is is the jurisdiction of this worldwide? Or I mean, how is... Interesting, yeah. You know, like, what do we do about that aspect of it? Right. Yeah, you know, and it's especially frustrating because there have been these ongoing conversations that as challenging as there are, there is a potential there to make some progress. And I see potential for like this sort of, I mean, I hate to, I hate to like malign anybody's intentions, but I have to like call it like I see it. It seems like a bad faith effort. And it seems like this bad faith effort could sabotage the possibility for any good faith effort to come about in either a legislative or or private marketplace in the future by, by putting everybody off of the idea of a centralized database. You know, in the same way that like a lot of people and a lot of musicians, I thought that SOPA a few years ago was sort of a bad anti-piracy bill. It was potentially well-intentioned, but really poorly drafted and would have a bunch of poorly thought out consequences. It sort of has like the fact that folks fought that hard for that bad bill and then it went down to such a heavy defeat sort of has made it more difficult to rally people behind more good anti-piracy bills, more common ground and consensus-based voluntary measures and as well as legislative measures. And I think that this bill really, unfortunately, has the potential to poison the well for anything on this central registry idea that's more consensus-based and more of a good faith win-win problem-solving effort. So in that way, I think it was like poorly thought out by not just the representatives, and no, no disrespect to him, but also by the various corporate entities that are backing it. Well, right. I mean, Chris Castle's piece ends by saying, let's call this what it is, crony capitalism. It's some of the biggest companies in the world deciding they don't want to hear from songwriters or artists anymore, so shut up and sing. <laughs> That's the end. Well, I mean, I, I, it's easy for me to forget that the entire music industry is, like, as industries go, just not that big. Right. You know, maybe $17 billion annually. The hotel industry, which backs this bill uh, through the American Hotel and Lodging Association, $200 billion in annual revenue, $76 billion in profit. Right. Broadcasting industry is like $150 billion in revenue. And yeah, it's like these huge industries picking on the little guys and eliminating any leverage that they can. Right. <laughs> because they can, because they get so huge and powerful and, and because structurally, because they have members in every congressional district. Right. Between the National Retail Federation, the American Hotel and Lodging Association, and the National Restaurants Association, all supporters of this bill through the Mike Coalition, these are the, the same entities that are the primary opponents of like increases in the minimum wage. Right. And they're all sort of embodying what it, one of the most sort of depressing and cynical things that I see in Washington, which is the big guys purporting to speak for the little guys, using the little guys as the right. shield when really what they're after is the big corporate bottom line. Absolutely. 
as much as this is framed as being about the corner bar or the little coffee shop making licensing work better for them, it's really about the big guys. You know, so it's a bummer to see like the Brewers Association, the trade organization for independent craft brewers endorsing the bill as well. It, it makes me wonder whether they've really thought it through. Yeah. <laughs> or if it's a straight up ploy to do exactly what Chris Castle said and just shut up get the music industry to shut up because we have had a couple small victories here and there, you know, like the publishing lawsuits against Spotify. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a frightening. I, I found the whole thing really frightening, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, we haven't seen any big groundswell of support for it. We haven't seen congressional representatives just swarming to get their names on this thing. And I think that's in part because for the most part, the process by which Representative Goodlatte has led this overarching review of the Copyright Act has been genuinely bipartisan and genuinely centered around bringing all parties to the table and making sure everybody gets heard. So I'm not taking any chances, and and I think it's important to stay vigilant about this bill. I'm optimistic that if something proceeds on this issue, if anything moves forward on on, on the registry issue, it's not going to be this bill. It's going to be something that's more balanced and more more built around taking the needs of the music community into account as well, not just creating new burdens for creators. Well, I am going to pray that you are correct. <laughs> we shouldn't just pray, though. It, it is worth calling your congressional representatives about. It's worth being noisy about because they should be hearing from us as often as possible anyway. Absolutely. Well, that's true. Well, on that note, Kevin Erickson from the Future of Music Coalition, thank you so much for being with us on The Future of What? Thanks again for having me.
That was Sunburn by Milagres. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Support for The Future of What? comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Braunohler wanted a face towel with his face on it? Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to attorney Chris Castle. Chris, welcome back to The Future of What? Thank you, Portia. So I am like so excited about this, this article that you wrote, Transparency in the Music Licensing and Ownership Act. That is your topic, Doomsday Book Meets Unicorn. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. I love this article. You wrote this, and it's up on your own website, musictech.solutions. Right. But it also got picked up by Hypebot, which is where we found it. Right. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, if you work in the music industry, it's like hilarious and terrifying at the same time. But it, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you just go ahead and give us just sort of an overview? We have had someone talk about the Transparency Music Licensing Ownership Act. Someone from Future of Music Org mm-hmm. helped us, you know, to understand that. Right. But can you just explain why you think this is such a terrible piece of legislation for the music industry? Well, there's sort of the short answer and the long answer, right? So the, the short answer is that this creates a conflict between current law and what the law would be if it were to be passed for people who are trying to sue to enforce their rights, right? And traditionally, and and by law, if you have registered your work with the Copyright Office, which has been the law since at least 1976 and in one form or another since 1909, you are entitled to statutory damages and attorney's fees, assuming you win your case, right? But that's an incentive for lawyers to take these cases because you can be sure that the government will never bring a case for copyright infringement (laughs) against anybody, right, pretty much. And so because that's the law, if there is a database to be checked or a database that's relevant for purposes of music licensing, it's going to be the Copyright Office registration database and uh, under certain circumstances, what they call the recordation database, which is where you put short form assignments if you buy a catalog or something like that that serves essentially as notice to the world. So the reason why this bill is misfounded, really, is that it conflicts with existing law because it says that the government is to create a new database, yet another database. And if you don't register in that database, you being songwriters and sound recording owners this time, you will lose your right to statutory damages if you sue certain categories of people and only certain categories of people. Right? And those categories of people bear a striking resemblance to the members of the Mike Coalition, which is a lobbying group that was established by Google, essentially, but includes the National Association of Broadcasters, Pandora, the Retail Federation, the Hotel Association, the Restaurant Association, and let's say the Booze Coalition, right? The wine and beer retailers. So if you go down the list of who has the ability to assert this uh, failure to register in this new database as a defense to a claim for copyright infringement for statutory damages, it's a list of all those people, essentially. FCC licensed broadcasters, 
terrestrial broadcasters, food service, drinking establishment, hotels, any entity publicly performing or distributing musical works under a blanket license or a statutory license. And the thing that's very interesting is that that coalition, that Mike coalition, they're the ones who sort of gave the rousing cheer to the introduction of this bill. Yes. Whereas the music business, who, you know, it's not that we're not vocal. It's not that we don't have bills in front of Congress. It's not that we haven't had a lobbying effort. We're certainly present in D.C., but this bill came about without any regard or reference to the music industry. I mean, that part is very interesting when you look into the details. Yes, nobody asked us anything, right? Right. And of course, <laughs> and, and of course, you know, they always say, "Well, you know, you can't get it together. You can't even tell us what you own, right?" Well, that may be, but the reason that is the case is not because people don't necessarily know what they own. It's that the nature of the creative activity is dynamic and not everybody thinks, you know, immediately of going and and registering with the government. If they write a song, they're much more likely to register with their PRO, right? For example, if you're a songwriter or with sound exchange, if you have a sound recording and no one's required to look in those places under this bill. In fact, in fact, Nobody who wants to take advantage of this, uh, nobody uh, in, the, in the people who can take advantage of it, the retailers and, and broadcasters and so on, members of the My Coalition, essentially, they're not actually required to ever use this database until they get sued. Mm. There's nothing in this bill that actually requires anybody to look anything up right. until they get sued. <laughs> right? So you can get a long way down the path. And in this case, even if you have registered with the Copyright Office, this bill would give the defendants in a copyright infringement claim a defense that supersedes the existing copyright law by saying even if you've registered with the copyright office, if you haven't registered in this database, gotcha, right. you're not entitled to your statutory damages or attorney's fees. So good luck with that. Right. And that's essentially why it's like the Doomsday Book, right? In other words, it's for those reading along at home, the Doomsday Book was created by William the Conqueror after he conquered England and said, I don't know what I own. <laughs> so he had people go out and make lists of things, right? right. Well, that was land military age males, you know, chickens, eggs, right? Things that could be counted and were not, uh, probably weren't going anywhere anytime soon. Just like the county recorder's office. The the county recorder's office concept essentially is handed down from the doomsday book. That was kind of the, the very first county recorder's office. And so, you know, when you look at this and you say, okay, so the reason why people in the My Coalition want to have this complaint, and it sounds logical when you say it to a member of Congress who doesn't know anything about the way the creative process works, you know, you say, well, we have a DMV for cars, we have a county recorder's office for land, why don't we have a database for songs and sound recordings? And that sounds all fine when you hear about it, except that it doesn't work that way. Right. And by the way, if you're French or German, it definitely doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know? Well, exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, I mean, you pointed out in your article that there's this myth of the global rights database. Right. And I have personally been on the WIN Council, the World Independent Network, and been in a room with representatives from France, Germany, Italy, etc., while they talk about this, because this is not a new idea. The music industry has been talking about this for years and years. There's a reason the Global Rights Database can't work. Nobody can agree on the details of what information should be in it. 
you know, if the U.S. wants to take the lead, who's going to pay to create it? I mean, there are a million problems. And this bill is also fascinating in, you know, so they want this new global rights database, but they also want the musicians to pay for it, right? That's right. I mean, the taxpayer will pay for it up front, presumably, but everyone in their vision, everyone is going to have to register if they want to be able to get their damages, right? And so the filing fees for that registration are supposed to cover the costs. And as you know, from your experience with the Global Rights Database, that's probably, what, $20, $30 million, something in that range, at least, and then the maintaining it, right? That's a lot of dough. So let us pause for a moment and remember that Google is a member of this coalition. (laughs) And the idea that there's a sentence out there, Google can't find X, (laughs) right? Right. You know? That's ludicrous, right? Right. It's just ludicrous, particularly in their case, because they bought RightsFlow, which is essentially a snapshot of the Harry Fox database. They have been running their content management system for 10 years, which is essentially crowdsourced song and sound recording data, right? And they act as if they have none of that. Right. Another reason this is so bizarre and just seems to be completely ignoring the music industry completely is that we have an organization that was created by government mandate called Sound Exchange. That's right. Which has a massive database of master recording information. And they just recently purchased the largest publishing rights organization in Canada. Right. I'm assuming with a view to starting to add publishing data to this already massive and comprehensive database. Right. So it's not like some a database like this doesn't already kind of exist. That's right. But this bill just ignores it completely. What they want is they want to burden you so that you have to register. And here's here's the really appalling part about this, is that when you read the press that Congressman Sensenbrenner, who authored the bill, put out, It's all about, well, we want to protect small business. It's all about small business this, small business that. But when you read the bill, having seen that messaging, you would expect to see something like, well, for businesses with net revenues under $500,000, you know, the following will be the case. Or, you know, something like we have put in for non-commercial broadcasters and small webcasters, for example, in various bills over the years, right, including the Webcaster Settlement Act and so on, right? None of that. It's not there. That's not who this bill is for. That's who they want you to believe the bill is for, but that is not who this bill is for, right? Because if that were true, that language, that limiting language should be in there, right? And then you have to remember that this is the same team that brought you the Fairness in Music Licensing Act in 1998, which was created an exemption for certain kinds of restaurants, right? And Sensenbrenner carried that bill also, and the Restaurant Association and the, the Booze Association was behind that bill. And when that bill was passed, it was challenged in a World Trade Organization arbitration as violating the TRIPS agreement, the, which is an international trade treaty. And the United States was hailed into an arbitration at the WTO and lost which means that the U.S. taxpayer has paid a minimum of, I think it's $3.3 million in damages to the European community through the World Trade Organization, which compensates their songwriters for lost revenue, probably will end up having to pay even more on that bill. And that means that the U.S. taxpayer is paying foreign songwriters for performances of their songs in situations where American songwriters don't get paid. Right. Absolutely. 
And this is the same thing. This is essentially the same thing because this will violate trips. Right. Right. This will violate trips. We will get hailed into another WTO arbitration, except this time, I think the number is going to be a lot bigger <laughs> because now it's not just songwriters, right? Now it's sound recording owners, songwriters as well. And by the way, from what I hear in DC, you know, this is just the beginning, right? They're going to want to do this. If they can get away with this, then they're going to want to do this with movies, you know, visual arts and so on, which is essentially a return to orphan works. Wow. Right. Yeah. And some of the same people who were really committed to orphan works are involved with this bill. You know, it's nasty. Yeah. And oh my God, I mean, it is. It's so nasty that it's hard to imagine. We talked to Kevin Erickson from Future Music Coalition in D.C., right. and he mm-hmm. made a really great point, which is, of course, they're couching this as we want to help small businesses. But his point is, how does having a global database help small businesses? Because if you think about it, let's say you're a a small winery, right? Right. Are you really going to go online and you're going to pick out the songs that are registered to that database and you're only going to play those songs in your winery? Right. Like, that's just not how people operate. That's that's not how this works. But that's exactly the example that the Brewers Association gave to their members. Isn't this great? You'll be able to go look up all these songs, right? But right, for what purpose? So you can make a playlist that you only play those songs? I mean, that's, that's not how, you know... Like we, I just said, I mean, you know, that's not how people do things. No. And also, so what if you did? That it still, it doesn't, it, it doesn't actually change anything because like you're saying, the only actual protections here are for the big companies who don't want to have to pay damages should they be sued by a songwriter for playing their music without a license. Right. And, you know, you can't really look at this bill in, in a vacuum without also taking into account the mass NOIs that are going on right now on the song side, because I personally think, well, it's certainly the same companies that are involved, some of the same companies that are involved. And I personally think that this is all kind of connected because with the mass NOIs, there's a rule that if you want to use a statutory license, if you're a music user like an Amazon, let's say, or Google, or Pandora, or Spotify, if you want to use a statutory mechanical license, then you have to file a notice on the copyright owner of the song. And if you can't find the copyright owner of the song in the public records of the copyright office, as the language in the statute says, then you can serve that notice on the copyright office itself. Now, in the years between 2010 and 2016, the copyright office had received 5,000 of these, right? And after the David Lowry, Melissa Farrick, you know, and now Blue Water and Bob Gaudio litigation, all of a sudden in April of 2016, the copyright office started receiving millions of these, millions, let me emphasize that, millions (laughs) of these NOIs saying that they couldn't find the copyright owner. And now the total is something like 46 million have been received since April 2016 at the copyright office. I don't know about you, but I've never been able to do anything 46 million times perfectly. So the chances are pretty good that there's a lot of mistakes. And we've actually found quite a few mistakes in there. So this is a a way for these same companies to be able to say, you see, they don't know what they own. We can't use the copyright office database because there's way too many holes in it. That's why we're having to file these address unknown NOIs. So, you know, we need some help and we need the government to step in and 
and keep us from being sued by these cranky songwriters, right? So it wouldn't shock me if there was a connection between all these things. Yeah, you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, do you think this is a coincidence that this bill comes out of nowhere right after those lawsuits with Spotify were settled in the songwriter's favor? No, I don't. And, and I think that they just threw in the sound recordings for good measure. But you're right. I mean, you know, Sound Exchange has about the only ISRC lookup, right, that I know of that's very effective and available to the public. Because of the, of the CMRA acquisition, it has probably the best matching capability of anybody in terms of matching songs and sound recordings, right? And it's important to remember that the CMRA database, as it exists now, first of all, is probably pretty much what you would see in the way of, um, of U.S. copyrights. I mean, people, most of the time, the same people who control copyright in Canada control it in the U.S., right? Because normally it's a North American deal. It would be very unusual for somebody, well, at least for Anglo-American repertoire, for somebody to have a separate deal for Canada than they do for the U.S. That's just not the way it's done as a general rule. So, you know, that CMRA database is pretty dispositive. Plus, it was built for the purpose of matching songs to sound recordings in the Canadian version of the pending and unmatched litigation, right? If you remember, there was a Canadian class action that was right about the time of the big pending and unmatched settlement here. So that database was built with funds from that class action for the purpose of matching those sound recordings. So this is now a new database, right? That's, that's contemporary technology with SoundExchange that is constantly updating their technology and has the best global sound recording database probably of anybody, not the least of which is because they have their kind of contractual reciprocity deals with PPL and you know comparable sound recording and neighboring rights collecting societies around the world, right? So, you know, I don't know where you'd go to get a better piece of information. And for anybody who does song research, the last place anybody would ever look would be the copyright office, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. I bless their hearts, you know, but but it's just not, it's not what you would do. And you know, when you look at the orphan works world, you know, when the Europeans put together the rules for what constituted a diligent search for the owner of an otherwise unidentifiable work, right? They came up with lists of things like the PRO databases, like SoundExchange, like PPL. You know, you have to go look in all these places and be able to certify that you've, you've tried to find the work in those places so that you don't have these gotcha situations, right? And that's essentially got the power of regulation behind it, right, in, in Europe. And, you know, when you look at what Sense Printer has done, it just completely ignores all that history and all that work that's already been done and all the information that's already available. Right. Because what really should happen is they should go back and change the rule in the United States that says if the information isn't available in the public records of the Copyright Office or other industry standard databases, then you can send it to the Copyright Office, right? Right. But they haven't done that yet. I don't know if anybody's asking them to do that, but they should, because that's just wrong, right? It's a loophole. It is.
That was The Saltine Coast by Boats. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to attorney Chris Castle. Chris, what, what do you think the likelihood of this act passing is? Well, first of all, Sensenbrenner is someone to take very seriously, okay? He's a former chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He's a, a real IP maven. He really knows that law very well. And from all accounts, he really despises the PROs with a burning passion, <laughs> right? So it's one thing when Jason Chaffetz was carrying the IRFA bill a few years ago that crashed and burned. You know, it's one thing for someone like Chaffetz, who was a junior member and, you know, didn't really do his homework very well. It's another thing for Sensenbrenner because Sensenbrenner is a very, very powerful guy. And I would take anything he did very seriously. Now, whether he's going to be able to bring his committee along, I don't know. I know it took them two or three tries to get the Fairness and Music Licensing Act passed in 98. They, they started working on that, I think, in 96, maybe 95 even. And the only way he got it passed then, I think, was that he attached it to what became the DMCA, right? The Copyright Term Extension Act, because he knew that was going to go through. And there's no way that people would, you know, the studios in particular would would think twice about whether songwriters were going to get paid for public performances of songs in restaurants bigger than a bread box, you know, because they actually measure, <laughs> there's an actual measurement, you know, of square footage that where they get this freebie. So, you know, I would take it very seriously. I would assume that there's, he's not doing this for his health. He has a lot of other things he can do. I think that the My Coalition is a humongous lobbying group and I think they think that somehow the time is now to push this through. I, I noticed that ASCAP and BMI are making announcements about they're coming up with a database, a combined database. You mentioned Sound Exchange has their database. The RAA is now talking about their database. All these databases, the only one I think, the only ones that really have any hope of bearing fruit are really the PRO and the sound exchange databases for different reasons, right? But you're still going to have the same problem, which is the problem you have right now with this mass NOI issue because, you know, new works take a year to 18 months to get through the copyright office before they ever show up anywhere. And people are just not going to be very inclined to go or won't know that they have to go register their work in two different databases. I mean, I think that's a really, really important part here because regardless of whether it's a new database or whatever, I mean, if it is a new database, let's say, they could make the registration process as onerous as they want. Right. You know, it could be awful. And I mean, as a record label owner, the thing I immediately think of is there's no such thing as just one song, right? It, there's Every song has versions of that song. That's right. And what about the version that, you know, we gave to a comp in the UK in 2007? Mm -hmm. You know, do you literally, I mean, they could make it so that you have to register every extant version of every song in the world. When you read the bill, that I think that's pretty much what it says. Yeah, that's what it looked like. Yeah. And then when it, and then it's got like nine pieces of information that you have to have, which some people may not have, right? The title, the copyright registration date, if any. Well, if there's a copyright registration, then why are we in this database, right? <laughs> Identify an identification of each 
owner of the copyright of the work of the recording or the recording. So if you have split territory deals, do you have to, you know, what does that mean? You know, identification of any entity, including a PRO or record label through which the work or recording may be licensed, right? Right. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Yeah. So, I mean, it gets onerous really fast. Yeah. And if we as labels want to protect our songwriters and our bands, then this is going to fall to the labels. I mean, what am I going to do? Hire a, a whole new person? Like every label is now going to have to hire somebody just to handle the copyright registrations? It's not even, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's crazy. And, and, and by the way, the way I read this bill is it has to be registered for both the song and the sound recording. So in other words, if you just registered the sound recording and you didn't have the information about the song, then that registration wouldn't be valid. So you have to register them both, which means that you have to somehow track, as a sound recording owner, you have to coordinate with the owners of the songs that are recorded to make sure that you both register at the same time and you both register the information that the other would have, right? Catalog numbers, each label name used on the phone records, made and distributed to the public. I mean, come on, you know? No, it's it's crazy. And it's it's you know, there's a reason why a lot of stuff isn't registered with the copyright office. And it's because it's a really onerous and expensive process. That's right. To do it. And so if it creates an, this is going to I mean, I guess that's a legal angle, right? I mean, if all the labels came together and said this creates an undue burden on us, I don't know if that's a legal defense. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. Well, you know, that's the sort of thing that you would expect to see happening now. Right. But I haven't heard of any lobbying activity against this particularly. Right. I mean, I've seen a couple of articles. There was an NPR piece and a uh, billboard piece on it, but that's all I've seen aside from what some blog posts, you know. Yeah. I wonder why that is. Maybe everyone just thinks that this Congress is never going to get anything passed, so they shouldn't have to worry about it. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that could very well be. Yeah. That could also be what people think and also could end up being true. <laughs> right. But. But if but, it's not, but if it's not, yeah, yeah, let's what what's plan B? Yeah. So exactly. now here's the other piece about this that I actually didn't mention in that article, but the way this all gets figured out is with a working group, right? That's to be established by the Librarian of Congress and the Register of Copyrights, right? This will be the Librarian of Congress who is probably hates us all now because people are trying to take away her ability to appoint the Register of Copyrights, right? right? The working group will consist of nonprofits, people in the business. It says, it shall appoint the members of the working group who shall be individuals or organizations representing in equal parts owners and licensors of copyrighted works, users and licensees of copyrighted works, and consumers and public interest entities. Now, I wonder who that might be. <laughs> oh, gee. Maybe yeah. it's going to be public knowledge, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Fight for the Future, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be all those people. This is going to be a zoo, right? Yeah. But that's all going to be after the fact, right? In other words, if this gets through, that working group will be called into existence and will have to render a report. And, you know, it's it's not looking good. So this is a pretty dark world, yeah. aside from the fact that it's Orwellian, you know, to a large extent, just in terms of you know, the terminology, like what, what, what they're saying, it's one thing and really it's something else. Right. And most people don't even know this is going on. Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. You know, and would never think that it would be possible, right? Because it, <laughs> it flies in the face of 50 years 
of copyright law, at least, if not more. Well, on that upbeat note, <laughs> Chris Castle is <laughs> an attorney from Austin, Texas. Chris, it's always a delight to talk to you. Thanks for being with us on The Future of What. Great. Thanks a lot, Portia. Talk to you later then. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard horse feathers, milagres, boats, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.